Oftentimes, we love discussing the Oscars and saying, what's the greatest miscarriage of justice? People love saying, all right, what should have won Best Picture that did? You know, Ordinary People of a Raging Bull, Dances with Wolves of Her Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction Losing a Forest Cup. Oh, my goodness. Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. Cinephile. What do you say to those critics who say, listen, Jerry Bruckheimer's movies make a ton of money, but they lack the substance and quality of classic cinema? No, I make movies for audiences, for popular culture. Same person who likes my dinner with Andre is not going to like Pirates of the Caribbean. They're thrilled to have Jeremy Renner with us. Is there any kind of friendly competitiveness on set with you guys? Cinephile. I think yeah, there's just more uh, suit and The great and lovely and talented Jessica Alba is here with us in studio. Thanks so much for coming by. Thanks for having me. The great Richard Lewis is joining us. At what point did you find that voice? Did you realize you could channel all this pain into humor? It'd be the Prince of Pain. I was about five hours old, and I was being put down by my family. Cinephile. Does Adnan Virk look like the undercover CIA agent who saves James Bond by killing a crime boss's henchman, smiles wide, extends his hand, and says to 007, Welcome to Tangier. Cinephile, the Adnan Virk movie podcast. The Florida Project is certainly lively, but it is anything but redemptive. In spite of its episodic documentary quality, it traces an overdetermined downward spiral. That's from longtime film critic Jay Holberman of the New York Review of Books. I'm Adnan Burke. Thanks for downloading and subscribing and listening to Cinephile. How about the new open? Shout out to Randy Moore putting together those great new clips. we got some headbanging music now coming in here. Richard Lewis, great. I mean, that's well done. Dan Stasek had to give those pieces to Randy, but I thought he did a nice job of weaving those together. Yeah, my favorite part is the Jessica Elba one, where it literally is just you saying, <laughs> here's Jessica Elba, and her saying, hi, thanks. The lovely and talented <laughs> Jessica Elba. Nothing else was noteworthy from the interview. First and foremost, congrats to my guy, Dan Stanzik. He has run the New York City Marathon. How many people can say they have run the New York City Marathon? Congrats, thank kudos. You, thank you. Uh, about 50,000 a year. But still, that's not, I mean, tell us what the experience was like. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. It was, you know, a lot of fun. I'm still kind of in pain today, even though it happened. It's, you know, we're taping this on a Thursday. It was Sunday. It feels almost like it was a year ago, even though it was just about a week. But you start on the bridge in Staten Island, and you work your way through all five boroughs. Uh, you get into Brooklyn right off the bridge. And Brooklyn was probably my favorite part. So much fun. People were going nuts. Everyone's a little have had a few, to, for lack of a better term. And there's live music playing. People are lining the streets cheering you on. You get into Queens, you go over another bridge, you get into Manhattan about mile 16, uh, up through the Bronx, and then back down into Central Park, and, and that's where you finish. Um, it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, finished at about uh, three hours and 44 minutes. Let the record reflect. I don't know anything about marathons, but everyone tells me if you can do it in under four hours, it's a very good pace. So 344, and that's slow for you. You could have been at 330, which would be outstanding. Yeah, the, the plan was 330. Didn't quite make it. Uh, legs locked up a little bit. Cavs were barking at me, had to use a foam roll at some point. Uh, someone had one at mile 21, someone that was working, which was excellent. But uh, a little disappointed, but under four hours, so pretty happy. What percentage of runners do 344? That's got to be the top 20. Yeah, I think I finished around uh, 8,000, so 8,000 out of 50,000. Yeah, so top 20%, I think, is in that range. If you can do under four hours, that's a true marathon runner. So kudos to you. Are you going to watch the movie Marathon Man just to appreciate what Dustin Hoffman went through? Yeah, I, I yeah. actually have seen a Dustin Hoffman run around in sweatpants <laughs> like the entire movie. 
It is a little bit dated. Uh, but congrats to our buddy Dan Stanzik. By the way, I'm going to be in Lemoyne College. I'm going to probably see the Stanzik's again. We we'll reached out to your dad, see if he can squeeze it. I don't know about another. I don't know about another Dino barbecue, but it's next week, next Monday and Tuesday. So that is going to be uh, 13th and 14th. So I don't know. If, yeah. I, my, Kathy Leo Grande, who, of course, is orchestrating everything, has reached out to your dad. We're going to see if we can get something together. So I will see him this weekend. Oh, good. Okay, perfect. You can already lay the groundwork. God, Nan's coming back. I don't know if we're going to go to another landmark. There's some talk with the Lemoyne Cafeteria. Whatever it is, I'm going to see the stands soon. We can talk about your marathon exploits. And you know I love some good writing. This was from a month ago, even longer. Um, from my buddy Mike Diesenhoff. I just want, because Tan loves writing as much as I do and loves a good writer. This is like some of the best writing I've read in a while. This is, this is after Hugh Hefner passed away. This is from a guy, I'm not familiar with his work, but this is a heck of a, heck of a way to start an obit. This is from Ross Duthat, D-O-U-T-H-A-T. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing it, but Ross is his first name. This is September 30th, in fact, 2017. Hugh Hefner, gone to his reward at the age of 91, was a pornographer and chauvinist who got rich on masturbation, consumerism, and the exploitation of women, aged into a leering grotesque in a captain's hat, and died a pack rat in a decaying months where porn blared during his pathetic orgies. Hef was the grinning pimp of the sexual revolution, with quaaludes for the ladies and Viagra for himself, a father of smut addictions and eating disorders, abortions and divorce and syphilis, a pretentious huckster who published updike stories no one read while doing flesh procurement for celebrities, a revolutionary whose revolution chiefly benefited men much like himself. The arc of his life vindicated his moral critics, conservative and feminist, while it began with talk of jazz and Picasso and other signifiers of good taste ended in a sleazy decrepitude that would have been pitiable if it still wasn't so exploitive. <laughs> wow, that is incredible. Normally when somebody dies, you like to point out the most positive things that they did. That is the complete opposite. <laughs> that guy's just going after Hugh Hefner. I just had to read that just to get your reaction to it. Coming up, Mark Wahlberg, his new film, Daddy's Home 2, a two-time guest here on Cinephile. We'll ask him about that film, The Departed, The Fighter, uh, what's going on with him and his family. Wahlburgers, we've got it all covered. And also, what does it mean when a movie is like spinach and when a movie is like dessert? We'll discuss one of Scorsese's biggest hits, The Aviator, in this week's Scorsese Stories. And thanks to all of you for giving your suggestions for who the actor's showcase should be. The winner is Gene Hackman, legendary actor. We'll give his top five films of Gene Hackman's career. That's coming up a little bit later on on Cinephile. Just a couple of films to review. One of them is an indie film. I hope you all can check out and find it where it's playing near you. It's going to be expanding to more theaters because critics are really giving it rave reviews. 95% for The Florida Project. And this is the film about a six-year-old girl, her group of friends are on summer break, and it's a story about childhood wonder and possibility and innocence, and I think it's really beautifully done, even though it's about a group of the population you don't normally focus on, and that is really poor America. This is really what, as a kid growing up, you'd call them white trash. I don't know if that's now the expression you'd use, but if you think of Florida, I think often for many of us, you think of Miami or Orlando and Disney World. These are kids growing up in the shadow of Disney World, and they're at a hotel, which, for lack of a better term, is a flophouse. This is where people who are on welfare go, people who are between jobs, people who are rejects, people who are borrowing money, et cetera. It's 38 bucks a night, which, by the way, doesn't sound that cheap. I think, I think of a flophouse. I'm sure there are hotels in this country. You get 20 bucks a night just getting it out. But 38 a night, and uh, they pay in weekly installments. And uh, it's about this girl who's wonderfully played uh, by Brooklyn Prince. She plays Mooney, the six-year-old, and her mother... Um, 
who <laughs> might be one of the worst mothers I've ever seen on screen. She's she's ostensibly this lazy stripper. Like early on in the movie, you find out she lost her job because she says a lot of the girls are taking guys in the back and doing extras, and I wouldn't do that. So that's the giveaway that she's an exotic dancer. But honestly, all she does is just watch TV. And, but I don't know, maybe she isn't as monstrous a mother as I'm making her out to be because she does care about her daughter. Basically, her daughter runs around with her friends. They do spitting contests. They literally spit on people's cars. Uh, they go scam people out of ice cream. Like, she's with a couple of her friends, six-year-olds, and they're telling these adults, oh, he has asthma. He needs ice cream right away. Can you buy ice cream? Okay, great. So this is just kids, you know, kind of like kid stuff. But then there's some stuff that's like, oh, some of it's pranks, some of it's serious. They go to an abandoned house playing with matches, playing with fire, et cetera. So, you know, the story goes from there. But her mom, I guess at her base level, does love her daughter, but she just shows no initiative to go and, like, get a job, responsible income. And yet what they do is they pull off these scams. They'll go buy cheap perfume and then go and sell the perfume at a high rate on the street. And then with the with the surplus of money, hey, honey, let's go out for breakfast, and they go to, like, an IHOP and eat everything that they, they want. Um, they, they, they get uh, passes for Disney World. They'll sell them to people at exorbitant prices. So it's a lot of like, you know, get rich quick schemes. I imagine a lot of people who are in this condition do. When you're poor, uh, you're looking to get your way out of it as soon as possible. Um, and then eventually the money's not coming, so she's starts to do some other things. And that's where the story takes a darker turn. Bria Venati is the one who plays Haley, the mother. But the best reason to see this movie, and I'm completely confident in saying so, Willem Dafoe is going to get an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. And currently on GoldDerby.com, where one of the experts picks, he's the favorite to win. Willem Dafoe has been a terrific actor for a long time. Uh, of course, he played uh, Jesus Christ in Last Temptation of Christ with Marty. He was also in The Aviator, which I'm reviewing a little bit later on. He has two scenes in The Aviator, which I'd completely forgotten about. But he was previously nominated for Shadow of the Vampire, a film I don't think a lot of people saw, but he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. But... Willem Dafoe has been just a really solid character actor for a long time. Platoon is his best movie. Yeah, Platoon is his best movie, no question. You, you think of him, I mean, literally the, the shot of him with the arms up there being shot, awesome. Uh, to live and die in L.A., like, well, Willem Dafoe has been around. Boondock Saints. Yeah, yeah let's say Boondock Saints. Like, Willem Dafoe has been around a while, so it's, it's nice to see him finally getting some recognition, which I do think he will completely get. He plays uh, the very well-meaning, well-intentioned hotel manager, and uh, he's very paternalistic towards the kids, uh, he's trying to get his job done, uh, but clearly these kids are always running around, and he's going to deal with these people who he knows are living on the margins of society. So how do you get your money uh, when you know these people don't have much money? And so he's really, uh, as best as he can be, he's being genial and supportive. But at the same time, he's got this gruff exterior. I mean, he is the manager of a hotel, which is not making much money, and he's always fixing something. Somebody tweeted me, they go, I love the fact He's always fixing something. That's a metaphor for the fact he's trying to fix their lives. So every time you see him, he's got a ladder. He's painting something. He's doing something. There's one scene which is fantastic. You see an older gentleman approach some of the kids, and Defoe's working on some stuff, goes over, grabs the guy. And the build to it in the reveal is great. He's like, hey, buddy, can I help you? He's like, oh, I'm a little bit lost. He's like, oh, what are you looking for? He's like, oh, I'm looking for this. He's like, oh, because I'm really thirsty. I just need a drink. And one goes, oh, come with me, buddy. Let's go. Takes him, you know, really in a very friendly manner, arm around him. Okay, buddy, let's go get a drink. Because you know what's really good when it's hot? Have a tea. Tea clears your throat. The old guy's like, yeah, okay, sure, no problem. Gets him a drink. Willem Dafoe goes, I thought you were really thirsty. He's like, yeah, because you didn't take any of your drink. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Takes a drink. They start walking a little bit, and then, boom, Dafoe pounces at this guy's a, you know, a pedophile. And he goes, stay away from those kids. He grabs the guy's wallet, finds him his address. I ever see you again? You're a dead man. And you're like, man, this guy is amazing. The way that he's so smart and so sly that he kind of comes on that he's friends with this guy and then completely beats him away. And, in fact, he is being... Like I said, this paternal figure, he is being the surrogate father for all these people because either they're like this 
uh, Mooney's mother, who's just a stripper who just sits in her room watching TV all day and then smokes weed and gets drunk and finds money somewhere, or other people are doing jobs, he's kind of looking after them. And it's a really sweet, gentle role, even though I think you can see where this is going. It is not a happy ending. And the whole thought of the Florida Project, that was the original name for Disney World, which I did not realize. So the Florida Project, the original role for Disney World, and they're in the shadows of Disney World. And the point that the director is really making is this. People think about Disney World and think that's the beauty of America. Well, this is real America. This is poor, uh, impoverished people just trying to get by day by day. And, in fact, with a heavy subject matter like that, you think it'd be a downer, but the movie isn't. A lot of bright colors, a lot of hot pinks, uh, a lot of fun being had with these kids, uh, very much a docudrama style of what these kind of kids go through. So it's certainly not fast-paced. My wife thought it was a little long, a little slow, but I said, well, they're trying to show this is the life for six-year-old kids. You know, it's not a lot of fun when you're just, you know, sitting around with your friends uh, trying to whittle away the hours. But I think the ending really does uh, pay off, and I did appreciate the resolution of the film. Sean Baker is a director. He shot his previous film on an iPhone. So to anybody out there like Rick Passmore, budding filmmaker, saying, oh, how do I do it? I don't have the money. This guy made a movie with an iPhone. Tangerine was the film. It's about transgender prostitutes. I have not seen the film, but Sean Baker's the guy. So he made a movie with an iPhone, and now he's making a movie which I'm guaranteeing is going to get Willem Dafoe a Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination. So look out for The Florida Project. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. Yeah, I think we had uh, Scott Feinberg on recently, and he called it the Slumdog Millionaire in Florida. Yeah, that was, which is an excellent description of it. Now that I saw it, I was like, I totally understand the the angle he was going to, because it's right. These are, are poor people just trying to get by, and that's that's what they do. Slumdog had a uplifting, positive message, as we all yes. know. Are you telling me that the Florida Project does not? Mm. Oh, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay. don't, don't want to give it away for people, but let's just say it, it stays as, as true to life, I think, as, as it possibly can be, without being too heavy-handed. The other film, quickly, I want to talk about is called Intent to Destroy. This is from filmmaker Joe Berlinger, and it is really two stories it's telling. One is through historians and scholars about the Armenian genocide and the fact that the Turkish government still denies this. It's been over a century now. Uh, We recently had, I believe, the the 100-year commemoration of this event. But the Turkish government denies it, and so the film gets into why exactly deny it, what caused the genocide, etc., The other part of the film, which I'm not nearly as comfortable with, is behind-the-scenes footage of The Promise, which was the first uh, Hollywood film about uh, the Armenian Genocide. And that film starred Oscar Isaac and Shori Agdashu and Christian Bale. And it was directed by Terry George. So it ends up being a really kind of an odd movie because you're watching 20 minutes of its historians explaining what happened in Turkey, why the Armenians were targeted, how this Holocaust occurred before— um, obviously, the Jewish Holocaust in World War II. So it's like this event has been clearly very underrepresented, and the Turks completely deny it. And I was like, well, I don't understand. What, what, if there's one and a half million Armenians that died, what is their rationale for what's excuse? And I guess what the Turkish government's feel for it is that, you know, there's no record of these people, that this is, there was warfare going on between the Turks and the Armenians, that this wasn't just a one-sided thing. It, it honestly seems staggering to think that this event occurred in history, and yet the government is completely denying it. And they mentioned Germany, the fact that the German government has been so open about the fact the Holocaust happened. There are museums about the Holocaust in Germany. They've been very upfront about the, the horrific past and the crimes that were committed. But if you don't come to face the, you know, the sins of the past, how can you move forward? And that's what Germany's done. In the case of Turkey, they don't do it. They show a clip of Barack Obama when he was running for president, and they asked him about the Armenian genocide. And he said, yeah, I'm very familiar with it. One and a half million Armenians perished. It's a horrible atrocity. Um, 
you know, famous Armenian, of course, the Kardashians. I'm sure they've talked about it on their show. And then once he goes into government, he never mentions it. And I guess because Turkey's an ally with America, and it's just understood, hey, you can't bring up the Armenian genocide because that's going to upset Turkey, and that's who we're partners with. So it's it's stunning to watch this movie and think this is history that's been ignored. And I have a couple of Armenian friends, Tim Kirchin, Doug Kazarian. Like, I, I have such compassion and sympathy for what their people went through and the fact that the incident has not been talked about. Having said all that, the Armenian genocide deserves to be discussed, but I just think this documentary isn't the best forum for it because along with those historians and scholars talking about it, they intersplice it with scenes from this movie. And so it's really jarring. You, you have a historian talking about what happened in 1915 Turkey, and then there's a scene of Christian Bale. And he's talking to like this child actor on the set of this movie called The Promise. And then Terry George, the director, is talking. But I'm, and I'm saying, why do I care about the behind the scenes of the movie The Promise? Like, just tell me there was a movie called The Promise, which is about the Armenian genocide, which, by the way, flopped. I think it got 29% Rotten Tomatoes. did not do well. And then I can go watch that movie if I care to. But the movie ends up coming across as this documentary about serious atrocities. And then it's also an infomercial for this movie that Hollywood made about the genocide. So it's a really uneasy mix. Um, but I hope people do check out the film just because it's an important topic. But this is one of those documentaries that I file under the subject is more important uh, and, and better, unfortunately, than the movie. So Joe Berlinger directed it. I'm giving it two maple leaves because it did open up my eyes to some facts and details I did not know. Uh, but it does get repetitive. And as a documentary, I've seen better stories uh, and more compelling stories um, that are about, about, about different subject matter. But Architects of Denial, Intent to Destroy, is the film. Now it's time for Mark Wahlberg. You are listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. Mark Wahlberg was kind enough to visit us at ESPN back in January when he was promoting Patriots Day. I, unfortunately, was on the road. This time, Mark's on the road. I'm here in the studio, but it's great to have him with us again. Mark, how are we doing, man? I'm good. How are you, bud? Daddy's Home 2, your new film. Tell the audience why they got to go out and see this one. You know, if you like the first one, you actually don't even need to see it. If I mean, uh, if you saw it, you don't need to have seen the first one. This movie kind of stands on its own two feet. But, you know, funnier than the first, all the humor for parents and children alike, and a lot of heart and emotion. You know, this time we were kind of, Will and I are now trying to coexist as co-parents. And then as soon as my dad comes, he calls BS on everything. My dad's played by Mel Gibson, who's absolutely hilarious. And, uh, you know, we end up hating each other more than the first time. Um, John Lithgow plays Will's dad. And, you know, it's just kind of the the writers and director did such a great job of making it its own thing that it's, uh, you know, it's not <clears throat> repetitive in any way. And it's uh, really sweet and funny and obviously very timely for, for, for what we're all going through right now. So No question. I love the cast. We'll get to Will Ferrell in just a second. But tell me about Mel Gibson and John Lithgow having those guys on set. You know, uh, you, they wrote really great parts, so it attracted really great talent. And these guys elevated it even more. Uh, they're absolutely hilarious. Mel just plays this kind of cold, tough love kind of dad. John Lithgow and Will, you know, they are overly affectionate and kissing on the mouth for long, awkward periods of time every chance they get at hello <laughs> and goodbye. And, uh, you know, they're just awesome in the movie. It's, it's so good to kind of have kind of brought those guys into the world, and, and uh, people are absolutely going to love it. Yeah, I'm sure they relish that kind of opportunity to have that kind of fun as well. You know, I get sucked into daytime TV, especially if you're on. So I'm, I'm flipping around. I see uh, Kelly and Ryan, and there's Mark Wahlberg. And you're telling a story about Will Ferrell's son and how he contacted your daughter. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, I actually had heard it from Will. My daughter never told me, you know. Uh, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, my son and your daughter are kind of, you know, friends on Instagram. I was like, what? 
Then when I thought about it, I was like, actually, knowing Will and what a nice guy he is and knowing his wife, I mean, he comes from pretty good genes. He's a nice kid. I know he's going to be, you know, have good intentions. I'm actually okay with that because it's inevitable that she'll be in a relationship at one point, right? So might as well be with somebody that I know and trust and knowing their parents. So <laughs> Exactly. The family dinners would be a lot of fun. You and Will just get to hang out together. Yeah, well, he'll finally have dinner with me. He'd never invited me over to his house. So, <laughs> I know you guys are both huge sports fans. I always see Will talk about USC and, of course, you with the Boston Ties. Who's the bigger sports fan, you or Will Ferrell? Uh, well, I'm the more successful sports fan, having, <laughs> you know, the Patriots, the Celtics, the Red Sox, and, and the Bruins. But, you know, he uh, he's diehard. You know, it was funny because when we were making the first Daddy's Home, uh, we flew, we went to the Super Bowl together, and he obviously is a big Pete Carroll fan and so Seahawks supporter. So that was lovely to be able to kind of have that win over him. But, uh, you know, we we have a great kind of competitive thing when it comes to sports. We have a great partnership and collaboration when it comes to work. So I think at the end of the day, we put our sports differences aside to be able to succeed together at work. That's awesome. Daddy's Home 2 in theaters. Make sure you check it out. You know, the New York Times had their list recently, Mark, of the best films of the century. And so we did our own list as well. And a couple of your movies popped up immediately. One is The Departed. One is The Fighter. Two brilliant films you were in. When was the last time you went back and watched either of those movies? Uh, you know what? I haven't seen either one of them for quite some time, but I actually spoke to Mickey Ward not too long ago, and we had always wanted to kind of try to do a second one about the Ward Gotti trilogy, because people always felt like you can't make a movie about Mickey Ward without having the, uh, those three fights. But, um, you know, I am 46 now, so if we don't get it going soon, it might be a hard press for me to do it. But, uh, you know, uh, two movies that I actually loved and, you know, playing, you know, Boston guys, whether it's a fighter or a cop, where, where dreams come true. Yeah, you know, The Fighter, I think you don't get enough credit because the fact everybody else got nominated but you, and you're the glue of the movie. Like, hey, Melissa Leo, Amy Adams, Christian Bale are great, but how about a nomination for Wahlberg? Hey, you know what? As a producer getting one, it was special. You know, um, it obviously would have been nice to be nominated as an actor, but, you know, I, we knew that those guys had very good parts and flashy parts, and, you know, Mickey was kind of an understated, quiet guy. But, uh, you know, we always cared about what was most important, and that was the movie as a whole. So we've got to focus on, when promoting the movie, focus on the performance or the movie as a whole. We always focused on the movie. Well, that's well said. And, of course, Leo DiCaprio was with you in The Departed. It was also with you in The Basketball Diaries. What was it like working with Leo? Yeah. How did you find that change working with him with that difference in the in time? You know, Leo's cool. It took us a while to kind of, you know, accept the idea of us working together. Um, but once we got in the room together and hit it off, uh, you know, we were, you know, we were out hanging out that night and, uh, you know, spent a lot of time hanging out since. How does uh, Martin Scorsese differ compared to other directors you've worked with? Oh, well, obviously Marty's, Marty's a legend. I mean, if you think about his body of work, um, but you know, he's, you know, he's kind of allowed me in that particular case to do my own thing. He knew that I was very familiar with that world, uh, more so than anybody else involved in the film. Uh, so he kind of trusted me to do my own thing and improvise and kind of create the character on my own, which is really cool. Yeah, I, I was watching on Levitard, and you were saying you, you were the alpha on that set, which is incredible. You're thinking Nicholson and Leo and Matt Damon, and you're on there as well. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite the cast. You know, again, you know, the guys, you got a guy like Marty and, and a great piece of material like that from Bill Monaghan, and, and guys will show up. Talking right now, Mark Wahlberg, his new film, Daddy's Home 2. Make sure you check it out in theaters. Father of four, obviously you're a family man. You're very proud of your family and your faith. What do you guys, uh, when you go to the movies, what do you guys go see? When's the last time you all went as a family? 
And you know what? We go pretty often, but we're usually going to see things that the kids want to see. Right. Um, and right. it's nice to be able to do a movie where we can all see it together because the kids are always like, Dad, you work a lot. You know, we miss you and me missing them, of course. So be able to, to make something that they can actually see and not have to sneak around to see is cool. So, but we always, whenever we go, we go and see whatever the kids want. And then my, my wife and I will sneak away and see something that's a little bit more adult. <laughs> I was going to say, Coco's going to be coming out soon. I'm sure the kids will enjoy seeing that right around Thanksgiving. Absolutely. Uh, my friend Ben Lyons, him and his dad, Jeffrey Lyons, we all went to Wahlburgers. Uh, where there was a game at Fenway in May we all went and saw. So we finally got to have some Wahlburgers. It was great. We all enjoyed it. Tell me about the restaurant chain, getting into the restaurant business, and how successful that's been. Nice. The restaurant business has been off the charts. I mean, we've now got over 20 restaurants open. We've got 450 under contract. Um, We are expanding rapidly. And, uh, you know, it's good. It was one of those things where, you know, they say don't be in business with family, but we're working together to create something to pass on to future generations. So we're uh, we're working well together. My brother, I know he would like to be going at a little slower pace, (laughs) but we want to be around to see the success uh, and enjoy some of it as well. So. Uh, it's great to see the fact that like you said your branch can do things and the TV show as well, Wahlburgers. Tell us about that. Yeah, we wanted to create a show uh, to really kind of go out and promote and market the, the business and show what it's like to be in business with family and starting a new business together. Uh, and it's been hugely successful. We're actually uh, about to make an announcement about us coming back. So I'm excited to bring it back. Oh, nice. That would be awesome. Um, yeah. Who's an actor or director you'd love to work with just haven't had a chance yet, whether it's scheduling conflicts, you haven't had the right material yet? Uh, well, there's so many talented guys out there. I mean, of course, you know, Spielberg, who I, I've worked with as a producer, but I'm yeah, not a director. I would love to work with Mel Gibson as a director, Clint Eastwood. I mean, there's so many people. Yeah, and speaking of directors, you work with Ridley Scott, your new film coming out next month. What can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, it's about J. Paul Getty uh, the third, the kidnapping in, 19, uh, in 1973 in Rome. And I play uh, Fletcher Chase, who was a former CIA and frog man, who was Getty's right-hand man, who was kind of hired to go out and find out uh, who was behind the kidnapping and then eventually go and uh, and find and bring the boy home. Well, n- nobody can say this about Mark Wahlberg. You are not always grinding and you do not have a superb work ethic with all that you're doing. So congratulations on that film coming out, Daddy's Home 2, in theaters. And, hey, you know, i got to give you whatever you want. As a Boston sports fan, like you said, you're living the life right now. Whatever you want. You want to talk Patriots, Celtics, Red Sox? The floor is yours, Mark. Well, you know what? The, the Celtics, obviously, you know, with Kyrie, uh, even with Howard Hurt, they are now, you know, on a, uh, they're 10-2. and two. They're playing phenomenal. The Patriots are, you know, right where they need to be. You know, I think, uh, you know, getting a couple losses out of the way earlier, letting the defense start clicking again against the Falcons. We're looking good. We're going to roll in the Broncos. And uh, we're going to have, you know, we've got five more divisional dogfights coming up with the Bills, the, uh, the Dolphins, and the Jets. Uh, but you know what? We're going to be right there again. Hopefully we get a good, you know, if we get the number one seed, we're, we're going to the Super Bowl again. <laughs> and I want what I want. I want Eagles, yes. Patriots, Super Bowl. That way, if the Eagles win, you know what? I got to play Vince Papali. I'm an honorary Philadelphian. I absolutely love the Eagles. I love the fans. I love the organization. So that is my NFC team. And I'm very happy for their success and very happy for the city. Eagles, Pats, book it, according to Mark Wahlberg. Daddy's home, too, in theaters. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, bud. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Actor Showcase. I like the fact Dan's putting it out to the masses and the votes are in. Listen, people love the old guys, all right? We're gonna, we, they want Robert Redford. They want Gene Hackman. I'll give you Gene Hackman. No problem. I love Gene Hackman. Al Pacino, my favorite actor. You know his favorite actor is Gene Hackman. He loves Gene Hackman. I, I couldn't believe it one time. I'm like, oh, Pacino's favorite actor probably 
Uh, Bogart, Cagney, Bennett. He goes, no, you know who I love? Gene Hackman. Tough guy. Good sensibilities. I'll tell a couple of stories about what a tough guy he is and also what a bad guy he is. Welcome to Mooseport. I'd love to get into the top five. That was the last film he did. How about that? Ray Romano. After that, I'm done. 2004. I'm retiring to Santa Fe. He likes painting. And evidently, he loves New Mexico sunsets. That's what Gene Hackman's about. Ray Romano drove Gene Hackman to retirement. Also loved him in Heartbreakers. That's not cracking our top five. Let's do this. Number five is Get Shorty, a supporting performance. I think it's a really funny movie. It's really underrated. I think it actually plays. You know, you always hear this expression, I'll wait for it on video. Now nobody says that because you wait for it on DVD. But Get Shorty plays better on DVD, and it actually plays better on TV over the years, I think. In theaters, it wasn't a movie you had to run out to see, but it's really charming, and it's really funny, and Hackman's great playing this B-movie producer who wants to get credit. It's one of my favorite lines ever. When he shows Travolta the script for the serious film, he goes, this is going to be my driving Miss Daisy. (laughs) One of my favorite lines ever in a movie. It's so funny. Uh, Number five is Get Shorty. Number four, I've got to have an iconic coach, Hoosiers. It doesn't hold up as well as a film. I'm telling you, if you've never seen it before, you're going to laugh at the short shorts. You're going to laugh at the 80s music. You're going to laugh at the cheesy slow-motion montages. But nobody can deny Hackman's brilliant performances. If only we could all have high school basketball coaches who are as impassioned as Gene Hackman. The scene where he tells his players, look at how high the nets are in the gym and tries to overcome their fears. It's a really great scene from a great actor. Number three is The Conversation, underrated film from Francis Ford Coppola. And Coppola said, if you know Gene at all, he's a really outgoing guy, especially that era. It was 74. He goes, he liked to wear jeans and get after it, have some fun. The Conversation is a really inward performance. It's the exact opposite of who Gene Hackman is. He plays a surveillance expert uh, who unfortunately is listing and hears a crime and then has to deal with some deceit and paranoia and runs for his own life. And he's excellent at it. The Conversation, a movie not many people have seen, I think, especially in, in later years. At the time, it was really rewarded because people thought, wow, how could Coppola follow up The Godfather? And he did it with The Godfather 2 and The Conversation. And Hackman is fantastic in it. That's my number three film. Number two, Jesus, is painful. I'm going to have to do this. Number two is... Now, you know what? I'll go number two with Unforgiven because, honestly, he won the Oscar for it. He's so great as Bill Daggett. The scenes where he's just beating Richard Harris is unreal. He's just not going to take any guff from anybody. He's not going to let everyone know about it, and he's amazing and Unforgiven, part of a wonderful ensemble cast. Eastwood said he knew he had to have him. He was the perfect one to cast. And number one, I can't I have to leave out the Royal Tenenbaums. We're going to redo this list. I'm going to leave out Get Shorty and Get Tenenbaums in. But the number one is, is The French Connection. He played Popeye Doyle, won him an Oscar, plays a hard-boiled cop. It honestly set the template for so many films in the 70s when it came to anti-heroes and tough guys who weren't going to take any guff. So to recap, I'm amending on the fly. Number one is The French Connection. Number two is Unforgiven. Number three is The Conversation. Number four is Hoosiers. And number five is The Royal Tenenbaums. The first one up spot is Get Shorty. Here's my Royal Tenenbaum story. So he's awesome in the movie, right? Plays this old codger who's just been a horrible person to all of his family, but he wants to get back in their good graces. And amazingly, because of the genius of Wes Anderson, he ends up doing so. And it's a really touching and daring film, especially the relationship he has with his eldest son, Chaz, played by Ben Stiller. On the set, Gene Hackman was a monster. Apparently, nobody liked him. Nobody could take him. Do yourself a favor. Google Gene Hackman Royal Tenenbaums Horror Stories. He used to call Wes Anderson, the writer and director, the C-word, repeatedly. Would verbally berate him. I don't know the extent of why Gene Hackman was so upset with everybody, but when they rapped, they were so thrilled. We don't have to deal with Gene Hackman anymore. I couldn't believe it after seeing the movie and other stories I've heard about him.
I didn't think he was a cuddly, lovable guy, but I didn't think he'd be calling his director the C-word. Having said that, he's amazing as Royal in the Royal Tenenbaums at number five. Yeah, the only one that you're missing is... I know, I know, I know, I know what you're going to say. Enemy of the State. Of, of course. <laughs> you know, it's one of those movies that's on TV I'm watching. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I, I don't think Will Smith is particularly that great in it, but Hackman's incredible. I do remember he was really good at Enemy of the State. He, he had a good... Enemy of the State, The Firm, he's really great in. Yep, uh, Mississippi Burning. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this one may just be for me, but uh, I thought it was pretty good in Runaway Jury. <laughs> Runaway Jury, is that the one? It was Cusack and uh, Hoffman's in that too, right? Let's double check here on the fly. Dustin, yes. Okay. This. Oh, here's what's great about that. So Dustin Hoffman and Gene Hackman are old roommates. So if they used to joke on the set. They go, this is going to be like the scene in Heat because the movie came out in 03. Of course, Heat was in 95. And Hackman starts laughing. They'd never done a movie together, but they were old friends. And they've got one great scene in the bathroom where they kind of just ha- trade some, some verbal firepower back and forth. But they kept cracking up because Hackman calls him Dusty. Not many people call Dustin Hoffman Dusty. But, and, and I watched the DVD and the behind-the-scenes feature, and he keeps going, well, the thing about Dusty is blah, blah, blah. And the, crowd, the crew kept cracking up. He goes, all right, Dusty, try it again. They go, what is he calling him? He's like, oh, he calls Dustin Hoffman Dusty. I'm like, can we call him that? I'm like, no, no, what are you nuts? Like, no, he's Dustin Hoffman. Call him Dusty. So he kept calling him Dusty, and he kept writing him about the fact that Hoffman, when they lived together, was so cheap. He literally had, like, one of those jars, you know, you keep all your nickels and pennies. And, and Hackman at the time was doing all right. Like, he was a working actor. He wasn't successful, but he was doing okay. So it was basically Hoffman was freeloading, like, sleeping on his couch. So Hackman was always writing him, like, hey, Dusty, you still owe me for all those times. Basically, you were sleeping on my couch for, like, a year. Hey, Dusty, pay up. You owe me now. Take it easy on this scene. Runaway Jury, honorable mention for the best films of Gene Hackman. A Scorsese story. So avid listeners of the pod know when Robert De Niro visited us on Cinephile, he says sometimes there's movies I want to wake, make and sometimes there's movies that Marty wanted to make. And I think the relationship with Scorsese and Leo, I think, has a lot of those same echoes. So with Gangs of New York, uh, Marty wanted to make the movie and Harvey Weinstein, the now disgraced producer, had said we need a guy like DiCaprio because he's got bankability. And so they kind of got put together in this marriage, which for some is uneasy if you see the film because Daniel Day-Lewis's character just towers over uh, Amsterdam so much. But it obviously was the beginning of a great collaboration. And this time, as uh, Dan has told the story previously, the one time he had to do Scorsese stories, um, Leo was actually really the shepherd of this project. John Logan went through nine drafts of the script, and Leo was with him for every single one of them. And Michael Mann was going to do it, but he had done... Ali, and he said to him, listen, I'm kind of, and the insider, he said, I'm just biopicked out. He goes, who, who do you want to do this? So then Leo said, you know what, let me call Marty, because I think he would love this time period and this story and, and these obsessions. And Marty jumped all over it. So Scorsese himself had thought after Gangs of New York, which was such a tiring experience, it was really grueling, he thought he might make a smaller indie movie. Instead, he makes a movie called The Aviator, $115 million, one of the biggest projects he ever did. And the reason for him that he wanted to do it was, he loved the opening scene. The first shot, if you haven't seen it, it's a little boy. He's being told by his mother to stay away from all germs, and he, he has to memorize the word quarantine. It, it sets into motion the fact that he had this lifelong obsession with um, germs and germophobia because he had OCD. Um, so Marty goes, I remember as a kid, you know, growing up in Elizabeth Street in New York, uh, the stories I'd always hear about, because Marty, of course, had terrible asthma, so he never left his place. That's one of the reasons he loved movies so much. His dad would take him to the movies. There's no place he could go. Marty was not playing stickball with his other buddies in the streets of New York City. And it was so dangerous, that area they lived with all the um, mobsters and such. So, But primarily because of his asthma, Marty was always inside as a kid. That's why he watched so many movies. So he said, I like the story of Howard Hughes, this guy who has a really young child. 
I could relate to that idea of being fearful of everything around you because that's where my parents were with my asthma. I couldn't go anywhere. I was always so scared about everything. And he said, plus the stories of 1880s in New York, the iron lung and like diphtheria and cholera. So he goes, I, I like that concept of how that would impact someone. And the fact that the only time that Howard Hughes feels comfortable is when he's in that plane, when he's away from anxiety and stress and OCD and he's just flying a plane. He's able to to kind of take on this mythic quality. The other aspect is he loves those old movies. And he goes, this was an opportunity to really delve into that time period, 20s, 30s and 40s. Get a little Artie Shaw going on the soundtrack, all the great costumes. Um, New York, New York, obviously, was a failure for Marty. So I think he felt like The Aviator would be a chance he could go back to that time period and make a more successful film. So $115 million, away we go. And um, to screen films, he had a cinematographer, Robert Richardson, who's a great one. He's worked at Oliver Stone for years. He had him watch East of Eden, the famous James Dean movie, I think in 70 millimeter, just to get a sense of it. And um, they also watched some other films from the 40s. And he also had his costume designer, uh, Sandy Powell, go through a lot of those, again, those old 40s movies, try to get the look of it. And the the speed of it, they watch Bringing Up Baby, which is a classic screwball comedy. And if you watch the scene again where Kate Blanchett plays Catherine Hepburn and she's with Leo's character on the golf course, it's got a lot of that rat-a-tat-tat patter. If you watch any of those 1930s screwball comedies, it feels like that scene is completely lifted out of it. Even the colors are fascinating. If you're into like a real movie geek, watch the colors for the first hour of the movie. Marty's basically working with two colors. That scene where they're playing golf, that is not a green golf course. That is like a blue golf course. Watch it again. I watched it again. I said, that's amazing. He's really only using two colors in his palette, red and blue. And even at one point, that golf course, they lose the yellow because he's just trying to show the colors and, and desaturate that world. Um, from a technical standpoint, obviously it was challenging, but the CGI was excellent. And one of the best sequences of the movie is, of course, in Howard Hughes' crash. I mean, that that is the closest you'll get to Marty taking on his own inner Michael Bay, saying, okay, I've got to have some big spectacle scene. That crash is about five minutes, and it's spectacular. It's one of the best sequences of the movie. It's superbly edited, uh, gut-wrenching emotion. The, the special effects are fantastic. Um, now, the film itself, I will say this. I don't love it. I like it. But if I wasn't doing this podcast, I don't know how often I'd go revisit The Aviator. When I would popped it in to watch it again, the first hour felt like homework. I said, geez, this thing is just slogging along. It's a two-hour, 43-minute movie. And the first 30 minutes is just Howard Hughes making the film Hell's Angels, um, which was like the first you know, multi-million dollar picture. So Scorsese himself said, all I knew about Howard Hughes was two things. I knew that he made Hell's Angels. I knew that he went crazy at the end. That's all I knew before I read the script. So I really, again... For a director who loves movies so much and loves movie making so much, this is a rare opportunity to see a filmmaker making way but a filmmaker because Howard Hughes was that. And he was a producer. He also produced Scarface, one of the most famous gangster films of all time with Paul Mooney. So the first 30 minutes is just a guy making a movie. So Leo's going through the rushes and you see him on set. And then there's that flirtation uh, with Kate Blanchett and Catherine Hepburn. How challenging is Kate Blanchett's role? I've got to play a famous person, Catherine Hepburn, who won four Academy Awards, which is the most ever, and... I've got to do it in the medium with which she was the most famous. So you already know Catherine Hepburn from seeing her in movies, and now you're going to play her in a movie. So this is working on multiple levels. And she talked to Scorsese. She goes, how do you want me to do this? And he's like, I, don't, I know what you mean. I already know what the question is. And he said, well, just don't do not do the imitation. Like, the, ah, all right. You know, the how odd. Like, don't, you've got to do the voice, but I want the person. I don't just want the character. And she said, okay, like, you know, read the books about her, find out what you can, but also watch the movies to try to get the outside in and go from there. And her performance is sensational. It's a great rebuke to anybody who says Scorsese's movies don't have great female performances. Kate Blanchett won an Oscar for supporting actress, and she's superb as Catherine Hepburn because she has an outer shell, that braying laugh 
uh, but she also has some vulnerability. And when she breaks it off with Howard, she says to him, listen, you and I are the same. You know, the world outside is going to crush us. We have way too many eccentricities. We have way too many foibles. We have to hide that from ourselves. You and me, Howard, we're the same. It's a wonderful scene. But I don't, like I said, I don't love the film. I think the first hour, I, I can understand Marty's appeal to it, but I just don't think it, it zigs and zags the way his movies do. It feels a little bit like he's going a little too mainstream. He's trying to kind of pass away from his earlier films, which were so gritty, and say, look, I can make a big, beautiful, glossy, traditional Hollywood crowd pleaser. Look, this is a wonderful film. Um, but then the movie gets stronger in the second half, because then I think it goes into more Scorsesean themes, which is the OCD, and you start to see the darkness of Howard Hughes start to creep up. And there's a fabulous scene where he literally cannot leave the bathroom because he's so terrified about the germs. And he's washing his hands, he's washing his hands. And again, it's just Scorsese just using that, that grittiness and that visceral feel. You, you feel squeamish watching it because you can just tell this guy is going to scrape the skin off of his hands. That's how much he's so uh, focused on this and obsessed with it. And another guy comes out of the stall and asks Leo to hand him a towel. And he can't do it. He just stares at it and just, there's no way. I, I can't do it. And the guy's just perplexed. And then you wonder, how's he even going to get out of the bathroom? He's just staring at the doorknob going, thinking of all these germs. I can't get out of here. And Marty said when he shot it, he goes, I had to shoot at those objects as if, Rick Passport appreciate like a horror movie. So I had to shoot it like from the towel's POV. So as if the towel is looking at him, and then I had to shoot it again from Leo's eyes looking down at it. So he goes, it had to give this illusion of those objects looking up being scary to him. He goes, so I had to use inanimate objects and make them look more terrifying, along with the cutting. Um, and there's not much music, actually. There's not much special effects. He's just literally doing it by angles and by feel to it and by Leo's performance, which is terrific. And for anybody who thought Gangs in New York, he kind of got overwhelmed by Daniel Day-Lewis. This time, it's a really superb performance by Leo, and you can totally tell why he shepherded this project. Who wouldn't want to play Howard Hughes? He made Hell's Angels. He was the aviator. He took on... All these challenges, and he was a Casanova. He got to bet all these beautiful women, not only Catherine Hepburn, but, of course, uh, Ava Gardner, one of the most beautiful women of all, if you ask anybody. And she's played by Kate Beckinsale in a really good performance as well. There's one scene where this uh, ex-lover of Howard Hughes goes after them, and, and Kate Beckinsale's fantastic. Famous uh, paramour of Frank Sinatra as well. So I think the second half starts to shift better, and you get some strong supporting performances as well. Um, I love uh, Alec Baldwin, of course. He has a small role as Juan Tripp. But Alan Alda is terrific as the nemesis. And originally when they were casting Alan Alda, uh, Leo said they're going through all the actors, and he goes, no, I, I, don't, I don't understand Alan Alda. Marty goes, are you kidding? Because Alan Alda's perfect for this. And, and Leo said, but he's so likable. Like, everybody likes Alan Alda. He goes, exactly. That's why Alan Alda's perfect for this role, because he's so likable. You need a likable guy to play this villain. And Alan Alda, when he got the call from Marty, he was thrilled. First ever Oscar nomination for Alan Alda was for supporting actor in The Aviator. So he was so grateful to Marty. He said, I was thrilled to do it. And he said, I didn't know how good Leo was at improv and how many takes we did. But the scene where he invites Leo to his house, again, this is the use like a horror film. Uh, you see Alan Alda very purposely because he knows with the OCD, he puts his thumbprint on the wine glass. And puts it on Leo's glass. And when Leo sits down to eat dinner, he's staring at the fish. And again, the fish is looking up at Leo. And he's looking at it. He just sees the eyeballs. You can tell he's so grossed out. But he just fights through and eats it. And then he looks at the glass. And it's so well shot by Marty. He just twirls the wine glass around so you can see the thumbprint. Cut to reaction shot of Alda looking at him like, all right, I, I know you can't do this. But Leo somehow overcomes his compulsions, and he's able to get through. The final 20 minutes is just a tete-a-tete between those two characters. You know, he's taking on the aviation system. It, it feels like you're starting to go for a triumphant crowd pleaser. But again, this is where Marty's strength lies. He cannot have a happy ending in one of his movies. So the last scene is actually Howard Hughes fighting with his compulsions again. It's almost a nod to Jake LaMotta and Raging Bull looking in the mirror. You see him talking in the mirror, repeating the same phrases, the future.
the future, the future, because, again, he's, he cannot overcome those compulsions. And those elements of when his compulsions come out are, are some of the best scenes. The one scene he goes, i got to see the blueprints. i got to see the blueprints. See the blueprints. And the guy's looking at him like, what, what's going on? Like, you're like a robot. Like, at first you think he's being funny. Imagine if you were talking to somebody who was doing that. At first you think they'd be funny. And then all of a sudden you go, what's going on with you? Like, he, and he literally, you can feel the terror in Leo's eyes and his face that he cannot control these terrible compulsions. And I, obviously my heart goes out to anybody who struggles with OCD. What a, a terrible illness to suffer through, which Howard Hughes did. You would have thought with the Martin Scorsese film they'd focus more when Hughes went crazy, but the movie ends right there, 1947, which is interesting. Leo kept saying, well, when are we going to show Hughes like when he's nuts, when he's, you know, he's peeing in bottles and his fingernails are distorted and he's so skinny and hairy. And there's a couple of scenes of that. They took about nine days to shoot those scenes. But Logan, the screenwriter, said, I want to focus on Howard Hughes as a young man, not to when he got to be crazy, which most people know about. I think we should focus on when he was this mythological character. And Marty said, I think you're right. Maybe an earlier younger Scorsese would have said, no, the, the Scorsese of Mean Streets and Taxi would have said, no, no, I want to know when he's really going nuts. But, but this time, Marty actually cuts the picture short there and says, all right, this is when he starts to unfortunately uh, go into the, the, the negative areas of his life. But this is where the picture ends. The best line about the aviator to repeat what I said earlier in the pod, is from Jay Cox, Marty's longtime collaborator and friend. He, of course, co-wrote The Age of Innocence with him. And Jay Cox said, my wife says The Age of Innocence is an eat-your-spinach movie. The Aviator is not an eat-your-spinach movie. It's dessert. <laughs> it's a fun crowd-pleaser, especially when you watch Scorsese films. It definitely stands out for those reasons. At the Oscars, they won five Academy Awards. That is amazing for a Marty movie, and it's all the people that I mentioned. Blanchett for supporting actors, Robbie Richardson for cinematography, Sandy Powell for costume design, Dante Ferretti for art design. Um, so it really is uh, a wonderful film for those reasons. And to see those, and Thelma Schoonmaker for editing. So it was nice to see Marty's longtime collaborators really rewarded, and you could tell how Hollywood would appreciate the depiction of old Hollywood, even though I think the film itself is not one that I particularly revisit. Dan Stanzik, the floor is yours. Yeah, I mean, I don't have too much to add. Thankfully, that one was a lot shorter than the one you did last time. I just like how it was personal for Marty, as you said, with his asthma growing up, and then, of course, the connection with Hughes and the OCD. Who was the writer that told, or, or that you mentioned, I think it was with The Night Of, who mentioned how, how the writers always inflict their own things into their work? Yeah, Richard Price, who, when he adapted The Night Of, um, he noticed, Richard Price has asthma. So in the movie Clockers, and the book Clockers, which I love, uh, the main character of Strike, played by Mackay Pfeiffer, has asthma. And they once asked Richard Price, he goes, well, I have asthma, so I put it in there. So when he read The Night Of, which was, again, the British film, he goes, oh, why does the character have the issue with his feet? And the writer goes, oh, I have the same issue. Richard Price says, oh, of course you do. <laughs> he goes, I do the same thing. Like, I just always put my, he goes, yeah, I put, like, writing is getting your neuroses out, so I put my own characters out, my own afflictions. But, yeah, it's similarly, that's what he did. All right, so enjoy The Aviator. Like Dan said, it was shorter than last time. I hope you all appreciate that. I'm Adam Amberg. Thanks for supporting Cinephile, and I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.